Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode, I feature Maya Cruz Palaleo, a multidisciplinary artist whose paintings, installations, sculptures, and drawings navigate themes of migration and the permeable concept of home. Influenced by the oral history of their family's arrival in the United States from the Philippines, as well as the history between the two countries, Maya infuses these narratives using both memory and imagination. They produce paintings of dream-like quality that hover between fact and fiction. Investigating the malleable language of the medium, Maya works offer a panoramic lens through which to investigate the larger questions pertaining to forgotten histories and how best to honor these stories in perpetuity. Maya has had solo exhibitions at the Kimball Arts Center in Utah, the Katzen Arts Center in Washington, D.C., Monique Maloche in Chicago, Pioneer Works Brooklyn, and many others. Recent group exhibitions at National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C., Seattle Art Museum, San Jose Museum of Art, Jeffrey Deitch, Los Angeles, and the Rubin Museum of Art in New York, to name a few. They are also participating in a group show at Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha, Nebraska, opening in May this year, and currently participating in a group show at the Nasher Museum in Durham, North Carolina. The work is in the collections of the San Jose Museum of Art, the Nasher Museum of Art, the Speed Museum, and the Fredriksen Collection at the National Museum of Oslo, Norway. Maya is a recipient of several awards and has participated in several residencies. Please see their impressive and expanded bio at CerebralWomen.com. Enjoy this episode featuring Maya Cruz Palaleo. Maya, welcome to my podcast. I am excited to feature you. Let's start with, when did you discover your artistic passion? I would say that I first discovered my artistic passion in high school. My dad gave me a camera. I think it was a Pentax. I forget what the number, K1000 or something like that. He was into photography growing up, and him and his brother had a dark room in their in their bedroom in the Philippines, I guess. And um, I took a photography class, a black and white photography class, and that was it. I was hooked. I I mean, I didn't ditch all my classes in high school to be in the dark room, but I I pretty much spent all my time in the dark room. And I took a lot of pictures of the people around me, my family, my friends. We would go into the woods and, you know, hang out and 
do drugs and things like that. And I took pictures of all my friends doing that. And, you know, it's, it's a wonderful archive, actually, now that I think back on it on that time. But, um, but yeah, so photography really opened my eyes to looking at images and seeing things that I didn't see at first glance. Um, I had a great professor in the, or teacher in high school named uh, Angelo Mantis, who, you know, would bring in different books every to class every week. And, you know, one of the books that he brought in was uh, Robert Frank's um, The Americans. And it just blew my mind, like uh, the way we would look at, we would just look at the photographs and kind of say what we see and, and sort of create meaning um, from just looking at some, looking at an image. And uh, at the same time, I was also uh, really into poetry. And I think those two things uh, were so um, influential for me, like in my, to my young mind. So now at this stage, how would you define your practice? It's kind of interesting to think about how I would define my practice. The first thing that came to mind is that it's a spiritual practice, I think. And what I mean by that is, I think that if I'm not practicing, I feel off. There's something that is necessary to do. And just the terms in terms of like nuts and bolts. I come to the studio pretty much every day, like a full-time job, unless, you know, I have a show up, which just recently happened and I'm kind of being outwardly facing. So there's like the inward kind of solitary time in the studio and where things are kind of cooking and simmering and stewing and I don't know really what's there yet but I kind of need to like tend to it for a long time and then there's like the other side of it that feels very outward facing and public which feels really opposite of what it feels like to be kind of in that space of making work or being in the middle of a body of work and thinking about those things through working with materials and kind of watching it unfold so yeah, I think I was just thinking this morning, like there's always going to be <laughs> a lot going on, you know, and it's like, how do I keep myself grounded? And I th- I just think about showing up and um, kind of putting my painting clothes on and just like picking up a brush and starting because otherwise it's just like too overwhelming. Are there thoughts or concepts that, that connect your work? Yeah, I, I think that, um, I mean, for me in the last few years, the concepts and the thoughts in the work i feel like they're they're quite process based in terms of spending time researching i was taught by my mentor uh, the late painter um, denise tomasos to do a lot of research and to be uh, really involved in researching things that i'm interested in and to be a research-based artist and those concepts i think i she she sort of taught me how to think about art conceptually so the research that I've been doing uh, in the past few years has included spending time in archives uh, and spending time with that material. And then for me, the process kind of shifts once I bring that research and information back into the studio. And then the studio is kind of where the art processes, um, for lack of a better word, ha- happen. So you know, re-looking at the things that I've seen in the archive or rereading the things that I've compiled from the archive and, and just letting those things start to kind of break down. And it, for me, literally, it it becomes 
almost like a collage process where I'm literally cutting up imagery from the archives and thinking about things that I've learned or seen in terms of objects or manuscripts or letters or um, things like that. And sort of letting those pieces come back together in a way that that's what happens in, in the studio for me. And that, that that's what unfolds in the paintings and, and sculptures now too. Oh, so on that note, uh, share with us m- more information about your sculptures. Well, I've been really obsessed with ceramics for a very long time, but I never really got myself into a ceramic studio to have a, a sustained practice with clay. And um, that all changed last year, um, last fall. And a friend of mine started a clay studio, he's the director of a clay studio in Koreatown called Do Clay. And I saw an opportunity to become a member and take classes, and I was able to finally start that sustained um, practice with clay because I had done some ceramics in the past, and I also went to school for sculpture when I got my MFA at Brooklyn College. So I was making sculptures and installations, but not in the way that it was very DIY, let me say that, because you know, they, they actually like didn't have the facilities, but I also was never that kind of sculptor. Like I wasn't welding and I wasn't, you know, building giant things out of wood or anything like that. But um, that was also actually one of the ways that I came into art too. When I was in college was a sculpture class that I took. And, and later on, once I was sort of had decided that I was going to major in art, I had taken a sculpture class. And at that time I had gone home for spring break. It was my sophomore year. And my mom suddenly passed away. So I missed like two weeks of school. I came back after she had died. And I that's when I ditched all my classes. <laughs> and I just went to the studio all the time. And it was literally like saved my life at that time. It was got, what got me through that period. Anyway, not, to, not that it's only specific to sculpture, but um, it doesn't feel like that different than the other aspects of my practice in terms of you know, whether it's a sculpture or a painting. And, and sometimes I just think I want to make things that, that are like 3D that I want to paint. But yeah, it does feel like uh, the sculptures feel now that I'm making these, um, I'm working with clay. It definitely feels like there's some kind of familiarity there and a bit of a homecoming, but also bringing in all the things that I've learned after like really focusing on painting and then now folding it back into the practice holding sculpture back into the practice it feels just like a another word in a, a sentence or something like that when do you know when a work is finished both the sculptures and and your paintings well the sculptures right now are uh they're i'm talking about the little ceramics that i've been making those are one day things like i i show up at the clay studio at 10 o'clock and then i'll leave at seven with a finished like form. I haven't put the slip on it. I haven't like painted it, quote unquote, but, um, but the form is finished. So that's been kind of a nice, like that is a little, that's very different than the amount of time that it takes me to finish a painting. But so for the sculptures, I feel like they have their own little like world that I have to get into. And then I just kind of follow the clay until there's a little person (laughs) at the end or a dog or whatever it is. And it feels fully realized. And then I, I also don't let myself 
keep working. And I actually, my instructor, Isolina Minjong, who's like an, an amazing artist, was saying that the sort of the nature of clay is that it it is drying as we're working with it. So not to kind of prolong that period because it uh, and and to work swiftly. So I really like that way of working. That's just how it's naturally kind of unfolded. With the paintings, they feel more like a, a funnel where in the beginning, it's so wide open, like there's so many possibilities. And it's always kind of my the most exciting part of for me to make a painting, which is the first layer, because it's so open. And then it starts to narrow in this way that is exciting, because like, my wife always says, Oh, it's coming into focus. And it and it's true. It's like the paintings kind of start like all blobby and general and there's not a lot in it but then eventually it starts to the the funnel narrows and then when there's nowhere else for me to kind of move or there's um i don't know i think it's a hard question sometimes because sometimes i'll leave something alone for a long time and it, it feels unfinished for a long time and then later i'll look at it and say okay you know i think i, I think it's the door closes like there's no more i can't put any more energy into it so Maybe that's part of it. And then also if there's no more areas that are that are just like feel like they need to be worked on, that that's definitely another sign of when it's done. And the titles, when do the titles of the work enter the creative process? The titling always happens like when I, I have to like send it off. <laughs> it's kind of a it's not a mad dash. It's it's like I have to go to a different place to to to, to find a title. I tend to use a lot of titles that I find in literature or poetry. I mean, otherwise it's like girl with a purple scarf or something like, which is fine. But um, I, 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 again, like I think the title sometimes for me is a, is sort of like a, how can I say it? They're very, they're very important. I, I guess because there's, they're like written words. It, it definitely feels super important to the particular piece and what what sort of I've been I was maybe thinking about in that in that piece and I just love discovering like little combinations of not little combinations of words but combinations of words that usually that writers put together are like ways that places are described or um, stories the way that a story might be told and a lot of the sometimes the titles come from letters from my Lola, my grandmother. I just love the way she spoke. She spoke English, but she spoke, you know, she learned English in the Philippines. So, and and also that was back in the 1940s. So she had, she used words that were kind of like old fashioned, I guess. And then the way that she would put them together was sometimes kind of awkward. So that's something that I really love. And then I also really like titles that have multiple meanings too. And when you're working, do you listen to music? I have been. I, this last body of work, I feel like I had like a renaissance of like re rediscover or just re-listening to music and discovering new music. But part of that is because for many years, I had a studio that was had a curtain for a door and <laughs> the walls didn't go all the way up. So I, I couldn't have music on, you know, it was, we had to wear our head. Well, I would listen to headphones, but Recently, I've been in studios that have a door that shuts, and I really like listening to music like on a speaker, not so much on my headphones. But um, 
Yeah, it's, I definitely feel like, depending on what I'm doing, if I have to like concentrate, I can't really listen to music, but if it's like a flow, workflow going on, the curator and writer, Kim Wynn, who I worked with at CCA Wattis, at the Wattis show that I had in San Francisco, she's now with the Ruth Foundation, but she had mentioned that when she would write, she would put one song on repeat. And I remembered that she had said that. So I kind of try, I made like a kind of an epic playlist. And um, I basically listened to that for like the last four months. And uh, I don't know how, it, I think it does something with time where I'm not paying attention to time, but then I'll hear that the first song is back on and I'm like, oh, it's been two hours and maybe I'll take a break. So I also had another friend who is a painter, um, Gretchen Scherer, who gave me this great tip when I was kind of first getting, when I was painting and she had said, I like to put an album on and just paint through the album. And when it's done, then I can take a break. So it's kind of helps with um, keeping a focus, I think for me. What does your, your workspace feel and uh, look like? Well, right now I am in a studio as part of the, the Sharp Walensis uh, studio program residency. So I have a lot of sunshine and light and three big windows, which is kind of unheard of in New York <laughs> for sure. And I've got paper on the floor to cover it so it doesn't get paint all over it. I have plants and uh, lots of like papers and printouts strewn around. Yeah, I guess I usually I'll have some music playing and I really like good smells. <laughs> so I've got like a, a diffuser in my studio. So I, I try to think about like uh, making it a place that I want to be in for for a whole day. Yeah. And, and now that I've been here for a few months, it's definitely like I'm starting to accumulate things. But uh, the nice thing about this residency was that I got a storage unit for the first time and um, feel like a real New Yorker now. But um, I put most of the stuff that I typically would store in my studio that takes up like a third of the studio into storage. So now, you know, treating, I mean, as I am in a residency for a year, it's really nice to have just more open space to work. When you're creating, do you think about who your audience is and whether or not they'll understand your work? No, I can't. I think I would be paralyzed if I started to worry about what everybody was going to think. I mean, it's already really paralyzing to think about that. So yeah, no, I, I try to keep that out of the studio. And how do you keep learning? Well, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is literally taking classes. The ceramics classes at Duclay, I just signed up for a forging class. The cool thing about this question, how do I keep learning, is that I think obviously living in New York for however long I've lived, like I, I met a lot of people. And I think for some reason, being an artist, I feel like artists are very social and uh, maybe not all, but at least in my experience, you know, we meet each other and, and we talk about what we're working on. And then inevitably we go like, oh yeah, I'm studying this, or I just read this, or I did that. So yeah, in terms of like the, the, the knife forging class from an, an artist I know, Caroline Garcia, who does um, Filipino martial arts and trains with a teacher named Kristen Cabildo. And they invited me to come. There's a collective Filipinx folks who are learning this martial art, Kali. And um, 
anyway, so the other, so, so this person, so there's always like skill sharing happening in this collective. And one of them, uh, one person who's um, part of this collective is also, I don't know what you call it, a blacksmith. So they're, they're offering a class to learn how to make your own knife. And in that collective, when I, you know, do go and I'm learning uh, very slowly about Filipino martial arts. It's like the movements, these movements that are connected to our heritage or our ancestors through like bodily movement, through fighting, through, through like warriorship, I guess, <laughs> and, and weaponry, which is so like nothing I really thought about that much, but, um, but it's actually very fascinating. Uh, to think about moving through the world in a body that, you know, has connection to a long resistance story, a uh, story of resistance. And um, what that is, is fighting and um, physicality and, and violence and um, protection and connecting in that way. So, I mean, that's something new that I'm learning about, but it's, you know, to, to keep learning, it's like, just keep talking to people and uh, finding out like what people are working on and, and that just inevitably something opportunities. There's like a lot, a lot of opportunities to learn something new. And I, I never really know what, what I'm going to learn, but I just, I just like to like, and it feels scary to show up to something to try. <laughs> like they just sent the email that was like, don't wear any clothes that you want to keep because it might get ruined. And you know, don't have any holes and make sure the cuffs go over your shoes and wear leather shoes. And I'm like, I'm going to burn. Like I'm going to catch on fire and like die. You know what I mean? Like, but it's like, it's kind of thrilling to just show up and be like, Hey, uh, I don't know anything, but I'm here. I, I also, you know, maybe cause I taught for a long time, like that's maybe a little bit more of a comfortable space for me to be in like a collective learning situation. I really love like doing things in groups. So May is Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. How do you feel about that categorization of of artists? I'm glad that it's there. I I have to say, like, I was thinking about this question before our conversation a lot, and um, I guess I always feel like there's labels can be really liberating and they can also be kind of limiting and so i guess it's a double-edged sword is um how it feels to me i think about like um thinking about growing up and um how much i was exposed like when i went to college and i became an art major like the artists that we were looking at were pretty much like all white european mostly men and, you know, I think it's been really important to get away from that. I guess it was an isolating feeling. And I think when I think about the idea of like, I guess, any kind of group like AAPI month or celebration, it's like, it's, it's great because we focus on these stories that aren't always in the forefront for myself to be categorized, yeah, it feels like it, it, it's like, I don't want it, <laughs> I don't want to be categorized, you know? But, um, but it's kind of like the world we live in right now. And 
and in a way, like I'm glad for the awareness, you know, and, and even for me as a, as a person, like, you know, as an artist back in 2018, I was invited to host a conversation with New York. Oh, I forgot what it's called. But anyway, there is a group of artists that were hosting like conversations. They would invite like eight, eight artists and have a topic to talk about. And, um, I had participated in someone's discussion and then the organization asked me to facilitate a conversation. And I just happened to invite like all artists uh, who were some sort of Asian and we were all in my living room and talking about this topic of identity. And, you know, it turned out we had a lot to say and we had a lot to talk about and it was only an hour long. And, um, you know, after that evening in my living room, there's like eight, eight or 10 of us, three of the other people who were in that conversation, you know, we ended up sort of deciding to organize together and create spaces to have these discussions that all of these things that came up, because like, I, there's no, I don't have an answer for really for this question, but there's definitely, I feel like there, we needed, we re- recognize that we needed space to be able to talk about all of these different experiences. Everybody had different experiences. And I guess in a way kind of being lumped into one is a very particular experience of growing up as like a first generation person of Asian descent. Like that's many of us had that in common. Some people are immigrants and, you know, it's just, there's just, there were so many different experiences. And anyway, since 2018, we sort of created this group called Asianish <laughs> and it's really mostly artists who who identify as some kind of any kind of Asian and uh, we just get together and and have conversations and discussions about things I mean most recently it's it's kind of grown there's um, many many people and we're actually having a group show this summer but now we kind of just more have like potlucks and stuff and <laughs> people who work in different places will kind of invite us to come to their place. That's kind of how I discovered Duque to just kind of share resources and and get together and, and have a potluck or something. But, but that's been, you know, I mean like that has been so fulfilling and I feel like that's related. And, and I think also one thing that I, that has come from that is just, just how undefinable it really is, you know? Um, yeah. So I think it's, it's kind of like a slippery slope, but I think it has a lot of positive things that can come out of you know, being in a category. But yeah, it's, it still feels kind of slippery. So, so what are you excited about right now? I'm excited to have some time. Last six months have been just, you know, really working on this show that just opened at Monique Malash in Chicago. And, and now I, I feel excited to reconnect with my friends <laughs> and uh, see some art and just be, um, be have a little more time to um, connect with people and, you know, celebrate. Uh, my dear friend Sarah Jimenez is having an opening this weekend, so I'm looking forward to that. And, um, yeah, I'm just looking forward to to connecting with some folks. I've enjoyed our conversation very much. And um, this is our last question. What do you feel is the purpose of art? And as an artist, what is your role? I feel like artists who have been around a long time have good answers to this question, but I don't, I don't know. Um, 
for me, let's see. The first part of the question was, what do I think is the purpose of art? Yes. I can only speak for myself, but I, I think that um, for me, the purpose of art has been, apparently I'm an artist and that's where my life has taken me. So kind of funny because I, I didn't really grow up with a lot of art, although as I get older, I realize there's lots of artists in my family who maybe didn't become artists professionally, but that they had that in them. And I think I've been thinking about kind of like, for me, the purpose of art, it's been a gift. Like it's a gift that I have, uh, was given and developed by who knows where that came from. But um, I think that for me, like to not do that would be sort of a slap in the face to like having been given this talent. Um, and I think about artists who I admire and if they hadn't done their thing and if they hadn't pursued their art, I don't think I would, we wouldn't have been able to benefit from what they've shared with us through their life's work. So yeah, I think that that's, that's for me is that just this like calling to, to practice this, I don't know, painting or sculpture, whatever it is, research and uh, these ideas and concepts that, that we talked about are important. And um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's a big question. <laughs> and then the other part of the question was, what is the responsibility of an artist? Is that yeah, what, what, is your, uh, what is your role? Oh, what is my role? Like I said, I asked this question to uh, the amazing artist Kay Walkingstick, who's been around for a long time. And um, she said that, the role of an artist is sort of like to be a visual historian, which I really loved thinking about it in that way, because, you know, I mean, it's true. Like that's how we, we leave things behind for the next generation. And there is a history embedded in, in all of the works that are happening today. And then, um, yeah, I think also the responsibility of an artist couple years ago, I was at Skowhegan in, in the summer and um, Latoya Ruby Frazier had addressed this question of like, what is the responsibility of an artist? And, you know, I really like put a, a fire under my butt <laughs> to, um, to think about that and that we do have a responsibility and um, a social responsibility that art fulfills. And as an artist, we're, we're practicing that. So it's not you know, make creating work in a vacuum or just putting colors down to express ourselves. Like there is a social impact and responsibility to the work that we do. And um, yeah, I take that very seriously. Thank you so much uh, for your time, Maya. I appreciate this interview. Thanks so much, Phyllis. It was really great to be talking to you. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.